As we continue our sermon series, um, Roots and Stems in the Book of Acts, last week we looked at the execution of Stephen as the first martyr of the church. And, and as we look back on that, it will now become clear to us more and more in our text today how the, the enemy of our souls, how Satan has clearly overreached himself, how the persecution that he intended to shut down the gospel actually caused the gospel to spread. And we looked at last week, one of my uh, favorite uh, sayings is, Satan always shoots himself in the foot, right? And um, uh, maybe a modern day illustration of what we saw and what we begin to see uh, after Stephen's uh, execution and the persecution that begins on the church and how the gospel then begins to spread. Well, maybe a modern day illustration would be um, back in uh, 1949, I believe, when uh, China, in China, when the communists took over the national government. And there were something uh, like 637 China inland missionaries um, that were there at that time uh, spreading the gospel for China. This was a big um, breakthrough at that time in that region for the gospel. And when the communists took over in 1949, uh, 637 missionaries, along with hundreds that were um, severely um, slaughtered and killed, uh, had to leave China. And um, this seemed to be such a defeat. We, at that point, felt like we were really breaking ground for the gospel. We were really being able to tell uh, the Chinese people about Jesus, and we were breaking the ground for the lies of all the false religions. And so this seemed defeated um, at the time. But about four years later, um, just as just sort of four years later, 286 of those 637 China inland missionaries actually actually were redeployed to other areas in Asia, um, Southeast Asia, spreading out. And what began, Hudson Taylor, what began as China inland missions focused predominantly and only in China, now became a much broader uh, missionary organization, overseas missionary fellowship. And uh, so we see, uh, and, and not just that, that the nationalists in, in, in China, under the persecution that they were under, actually the Chinese church began to grow at a much a faster rate than even when our missionaries were there under persecution. And so, again, we see Satan always shoots himself in the foot. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. Absolutely. That's our main theme as we go through the book of Acts. And this is going to be, um, we're going to see this unfold as we go through now. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open up to Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> we're going to be um, jumping around a little bit today, and I'll, I'll tell you why in just a minute. But we're going to pick up pretty much where we left off last week in Acts chapter 8. I'm just going to read the first three verses there. And this picks up right after Stephen's execution. And Saul was there giving approval to his death, referring to Stephen. So we got the first glimpse of Saul, who we now refer to as the Apostle Paul. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 
Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. So what we see here is that that through persecution, Christ now calls his people, all his people, not just the apostles, he calls his people to go out. He starts to scatter them through persecution. And he goes out with them in the power and the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and it's not that everyone becomes a preacher like the apostles. Remember, you talked about the apostles have a very unique calling. But, but these uh, new believers, if you will, these followers of the way is what they were referred to at that time, the Christians, uh, they began to go out to different areas in fear of their lives. And when they went to these areas, they began telling people about what they learned and what they heard and what they know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Luke concludes his story uh, by, by really showing us that, that Christ's great commission to be his witnesses in all Judea and Samaria, where these people are scattering to, is beginning to be fulfilled through persecution. And, and I love the, the contrast we see of Stephen and Saul. Remember the, at, at Stephen's execution, remember his face shone like an angel? And he prayed for even his, his, his executor's souls. He prayed that God would forgive them. And, and in contrast, it says that Saul was standing there. I don't know if you picked this up when we were, because we were really focused on Stephen last week, but we're going to focus on Saul this week. So Saul was standing there. It says they laid their coats at Saul's feet. Which, which was really an act of leadership and authority, meaning they looked to Saul for the approval of the Jewish council to, to execute Stephen. Saul was the one who gave the approval. He was way up in the Jewish council, enough to where they could stone Stephen and not get in trouble for it. And so we see such a comparison of, of, the, true, of the two. And then later, Saul or the apostle Paul will write later on, of the significant impact that Stephen made on Saul that very day. But for now, uh, our text today is going to really focus that Saul is extremely committed to destroy these followers of Jesus. And, and remember how last week, we, we remember how big this sermon series is going to be because the Acts, book of Acts is so large. So we've got the stems, I mean, got the roots, where we've looked at really the, the, the um, Pentecost and, and really the foundation, the roots of what it means to be a Christian church. And, and before we get, and I should have used the image maybe of a tree, right? Remember, we looked at branches. Before we get to the stems or the branches of the Christian church, we have the trunk. And God focuses on four people like as the trunk, something to, to kind of launch from the roots into the stems or the branches, if you will. And one of them was Stephen. Uh, the other one is going to be um, uh, Philip, who is going to go over to Samaria. Then we have Cornelius, who is the first Gentile convert. And we have Saul. And these four, the trunk, is that really what we're going to see in Acts chapter 8 and 9, maybe a little bit into 10, but Acts chapter 8 and 9 for sure, is that everything is kind of happening at once. So we can't be real Western today. We can't read it very linear and say this is chronological, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. What, uh, what uh, Dr. Luke, Apostle Luke, is going is to write is that it's kind of meanwhile. It's, it's happening at the same time. So I had a choice. We, could, we got a glimpse of Saul. We could switch over to Philip, who goes to Samaria. Or since we got a glimpse of him, we're just going to kind of see what is happening with Saul at this point. And then we'll go, and that's going to be in Acts chapter 9, and then we'll go back into Acts chapter 8 and see what Philip is doing in Samaria. So all that to, to explain to you what I'm doing. 
Um, so we'll go to, in case you were wondering, like we didn't do Acts chapter 8, right? So <clears throat> turn over to Acts chapter 9. And, and just, you know, as you see, that first word in one is, is meanwhile, right? So everything is kind of happening all at once. So I'm going to read uh, just the first couple verses. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went out to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they refer to themselves as the Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So this is our context, if you will. Some Christians have, this, have escaped Saul's severe persecution. They, like we said, they fled from Jerusalem. A lot of them have gone over to Damascus. Damascus is about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. So, it, so it's, it's fleeable, if you will. Persecution breaks out. It's, they might have family there. They might, they might know the way. Uh, in in a, that kind of terrain, you want to know the way. So a lot of them fled to Damascus. So Saul goes to the higher council, even than his position, and he asks for permission to basically do a manhunt, a man and woman and child hunt, to go out and hunt these Christians who have escaped him, if you will. And, um, and they, they, they grant him that extradition, if you will. And, and Saul refers back to in this time in his life and this. It's always fun to kind of look back how Saul describes what we're going to study today. So we have it on the screen, Dennis Acts uh, 22, 4 through 5. He says, this is what Saul or the Apostle Paul will write later on. He said, I persecuted this way to the, to the death, talking about the Christians binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So Saul of Tarsus has blood on his hands, if you will. And we will see that through the book of Acts that several others follow Stephen into the martyrdom for Christ. Now the verb used is, is very interesting. The verb used for, for, for describing uh, Saul's manhunt, if you will, the verb used is, is lameno. And lameno basically is a, a brutal and sadistic cruelty. See, see we, we, we've read this, some of us, so many times that, that I, I think we just read it, yes, he persecuted the church. Oh, yeah, he tried to destroy the church. Yeah, Stephen was a martyr. No, no, the verb is actually, it's only used one time in the New Testament. And it refers to such a brutal and sadistic cruelty. In the Old Testament, it's only used one time in Psalm 83, and it refers to wild boars devastating a vineyard. Basically, the ravaging of a body by a wild beast. This is how severe of a persecution that Saul led and did with his own hands. Luke's own language describes Paul at different points as a wild and savage beast. Now, Here's the interesting part. It describes something we see on the news today, right? Very much like ISIS that we see. Not only that, but you realize Damascus is in Syria, right where Christians are being persecuted today by these wild and savage beasts. It's a very interesting parallel as we study the book of Acts today. But God has a very different plan for Saul. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 3, and I'm actually um, going to read 3 through 19, just the beginning of 19, so we can kind of look at the whole story and then we'll, we'll flesh it out. 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Can you imagine? Uh, Lord, Ananias answered, I I, I have heard many reports about this man um, and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. I'm putting it nicely, speaking back to the Lord, right? And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and taking some food, he regained his strength. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot in that story. If you were like me, you're probably wondering, what in the world is God doing, right? I mean, the first is, is Ananias, right? Can you imagine the poor fellow? I mean, I mean, he, he's like, oh, uh, yeah, I've heard many reports, and he's probably thinking to myself, um, if he doesn't kill me, the guys that I'm going to take him to are going to kill me, right? Like, Lord, I, do you know who you're asking me to go to? I mean, the fear that Ananias must have really felt for his life, and, and the embarrassment and maybe even the fear of bringing him into the group uh, he must have really struggled with. William Barclay, a theologian, calls Ananias one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. Because you realize then Saul then becomes the Apostle Paul and writes most of our Bible. So Ananias is a huge character, a huge uh, catalyst, if you will, for bringing us the gospel. What I also want to notice is that um, there's a few things to notice in this story. And the first one is that Saul did not decide for Christ. Did you notice that? See, Saul did not decide for Christ, but Christ decided for him. And in this way, Saul's conversion is an example of the grace that saves us all. You see, Saul moves from persecuting Jesus to preaching about Jesus because it's God's grace alone that saves and changes us. See, God did not choose Saul because he had earned it. God did not choose Saul because he was even a good guy. It was purely God's grace that God chose him for his purposes. God revealed himself to Saul while he was yet going against him. Does that sound like another Bible verse, you know? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? That's what grace is, you see. Grace is the revelation of God when we don't deserve it at all. 
It is not that we are religious enough, we're trying hard enough, we're good enough, but Saul's dramatic conversion is such an eye-opener to the grace that saves us all. That it is Christ that chooses us, not us choosing him. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us, right? The biblical evidence for this is, is later... Uh, The Apostle Paul writes this to the Galatians. He says, It pleased God to reveal His Son to me. It pleased God to reveal His Son to me. God took the initiative according to His will, according to His pleasure. It pleased God. What kind of love is that? It pleased God to reveal His Son to me who was persecuting Him. That's a rich, dramatic, radical kind of love that is the basis for God's grace to all of us. Paul illustrated later in Philippians, he used the imagery of God taking hold of me. Maybe a play on words that that God arrested him when he was out arresting Christians, right? That God took hold of me. I was out to take hold of him and God took hold of me. The key here is that, that, that Saul had not changed since Stephen's death yet. In fact, it, it fueled him to go out and do a manhunt. But he was, and he was still the same mental condition of hatred, hostility towards the Jesus followers. And yet another imagery Saul uses as he, as he looks back, he writes, that a river flooding his heart with faith and love overwhelmed him. How many of us can relate to that? How many of us can look back and, and, and know without a shadow of doubt that God just started intervening in our lives? It didn't make sense. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But we are sitting here today only because of God's grace. That's a beautiful foundation of which we all, every single one of us, starts. Secondly, there, there can be no misunderstanding of what has happened here. See, see some... Some uh, um, critics might say that Saul just had this weird dream or vision, or it, was, it wasn't real, it wasn't the real Christ that actually uh, revealed himself to him. But see, only that kind of revelation, only that kind of grace can really change a person from the inside out. If Saul just had a crazy vision or a dream, I hardly think he would have moved from persecuting Jesus to preaching Jesus. See, if anything, the radical change in Saul was evident. To, to the reality that he saw the real Christ. He moved from an opponent of Christ to a captive of Christ. Christ had interrupted his headlong career of persecution and turned him around to face the opposite direction. And one thing I also want to point out is that, that we have to understand that Saul's conversion, his conversion of faith was most likely a process. See, it was a journey of, of God relentlessly pursuing Saul, even if Saul didn't realize it. Even if Saul fought against uh, Christ. And, 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 and we have to understand that because, because sometimes we just read the actual story and we might think that Saul wasn't even pursuing um, God at all. But there was, there was this pursuit that must have been going on that, that was happening in Saul's heart that he probably felt. But we don't, we don't get the glimpse of that. But we do later on in Acts 26:14. Let me read for you. This is what Saul writes about a little more about what happened on that vision. He says, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is what he says. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So what he's saying is, Saul, 
It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's a goad? Now, a goad was a tool that plowmen used in the farming uh, time of this time. It was, it was sometimes about 10 feet long. It had sharp points in it. And, and it was a formable weapon, if you will. So it's a proverbial statement for an unveiling resistance to superior power. The imagery here is that Jesus was pursuing Saul for a while. See, he was prodding him, poking him, making him very, very, very uncomfortable for a long time. Now, Saul wasn't responding yet. He didn't do anything to earn that prodding or poking. That's God's grace. And, and I, don't you hear Christ's compassion? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You're just making it hard on yourself. See, Christ's compassion is just give it up. Just surrender. Just come to me. Just rest in me. This is hard for you. Lay it down. This is actually the compassion, the poking, the prodding. This formidable weapon of a goad is an image that God is the relentless pursuer of us by His grace. He hunts us down, if you will. And so, so even though we get this story all at once, we see a vision later, or we get the glimpse later in Acts 26 that I just read, that actually God had been trying to reach Saul for a while. I, I, I can relate somewhat to, uh, to, to Saul's inner torment. I don't know if you can. I don't know if there's something in your life that God is maybe just coming to Christ. Maybe just finally laying down all the doubt, all the fears, all the unbelief, all the excuses you've made not to follow Christ. Maybe finally you're just ready to lay it down because it's just exhausting. You can't fight God anymore. Maybe there's something that as you've been following Christ, He's been telling you to do. He's been, he, there's a, it's a goad to you. He's been prodding you, poking you, and you just don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. It's exhausting. I, I remember there was a time in my life where, where God was telling me to go back to school. I had married young, so I'd never gone to college. He was telling me to go back to school, and I knew what that entailed. You know, I, I, I just knew that, that was going to be a busy life. It was going to be a lot to do. I just really didn't want to. I, ha- I had some friends that we were raising kids together. I was having a good time with them. I, I did not want to be that busy and, and, and that focused. It was, I don't know how many years it was. It might have been four or five years. I can be stubborn, I tell you. And I was so miserable at that time because I would pray and, and about being miserable, and God was basically telling me, all I want you to do is go to school. This is all he'd say to me. And I would complain about being miserable. All I want you to do is go to school. And I just fought him and fought him and fought him. Until finally, finally I gave in. I started going back to school. And yes, life got hard. It got busy, especially going into seminary. I, I did 12 to 15 years without a break, without one summer break. We had to go A, A, B, A, M, dip. It was exhausting. Some people asked me, how are you doing it? And I said, I was so miserable when I wasn't that this is easy. <laughs> it's so true. Like, I don't know if you've ever had that, but when you finally surrender, there's this release, this release that you have of, okay. I'm finally just going to trust God. And it's so much better place than fighting or, or kicking against the goads, if you will. At the very least, Saul most likely struggled with doubt in who Jesus is, just like many of us do. He probably wondered if Jesus was an imposter under a Roman execution, under a curse of God. But Saul's doubt could not hold up against the goad of Stephen's execution. We'll find that later, what a difference that made for, for Saul. 
We also need to understand that, that Saul's actual conversion, the moment of faith, actually happens later, not on the time where the light hits him and he gets blinded. It actually happens when Ananias prays for him. We, we know this because, uh, I don't know if you caught that, there's a translation issue in when, 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 when God interferes and interrupts his journey and blinds him with the light and, and, uh, and, and uh, Saul asks, Who are you, Lord? The translation could actually be Sir. So, Lord and Sir was often misused interchangeably. Could be Lord as in Master. It could just be a surname. So, so the translation, if you were to go with Sir, is Who are you, Sir? Who Who are you that has just re- revealing himself to me and blinded and is about ready to blind me? Who are you? Then he introduces himself as Jesus. But there's no real conversion of faith at that point. Saul remains blind. You see. And almost like the blindness is a symbolism of him still not able to fully see who Jesus is, still holding on to his doubts, still wondering if maybe he's just an imposter, still wondering if maybe he's cursed by God, still wondering if he should really trust him. And so God blinds him and then leads him with his companions into the city. Later, when Ananias prays for him, what happens? Ananias comes, and and, 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 in obedience to God, Ananias comes, and, and he says to Saul, he says, Saul, the same Jesus who, re- who, who revealed himself to you on the road is the same Jesus who is now sending me to pray for you, to lay hands on you, that you would, what, be, your sight would be restored and that you would receive the Holy Spirit. See, none of that has come in yet. So the conversion, just so you know, happens actually during that time where then it's almost like there's a moment of faith that cannot be described here in words. Because in that moment of faith, I believe that Saul then believed that Jesus is the Son of God, whom Stephen proclaimed at his death. He had seen Stephen proclaim it right at the point of his death. He understood now that this this Jesus who revealed himself to him on the road is the same Jesus Ananias is sending him. And what happened then? He received the Holy Spirit. The scales, the Dr. Luke describes them as scales, right? Scales come off his eyes, and then he gets back. See, there's a whole conversion that happens now. And and it all begins with what? Grace, right? It all begins with God interrupting our path, pursuing us, a relentless pursuer, prodding us, poking us, preparing us to say yes to him by faith. And then our eyes began to see the truth of who Jesus really is. We get baptized. We begin this new life and identity of faith, if you will. And the ox had finally been broken in, if you will. And we see that grace leads to a new identity and a new family because when, when Ananias actually lays hands on Saul, it's such a beautiful thing. I don't know if you caught that too, but he says, Brother Saul, my brother Saul, not just brother as in theological, like I'm going to obey God's commands and trust him, which was big enough. I'm going to believe in my head that God wants me to do this, but he says, my brother Saul. So at that place of conversion, we receive this new identity and we come into the family of God and we receive new brothers and sisters. And Ananias uh, models this for us, if you will. We can also note that, that Saul's genuine repentance is actually demonstrated. Because some of you, you might be wondering, like I sometimes wonder, well, how do we know it was, was true? Like, how do we know he really, really did repent? I mean, 
this guy was an ISIS guy. Remember, this guy is that kind of guy. I mean, I would think that the Christians might kind of wonder too. How do we know he's not faking it? How do we know he's just not trying to trick us? Well, the evidence is demonstrated in the change in his life. Look with me and let's finish 19 and read to 22. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So Saul proved his genuine faith and repentance by the change in his life, not just in his attitude, but in what he began to do. He went from persecuting Christ to preaching Christ. He, he, uh, he, later on, he refers to himself over and over and over. If you, if you read the introduction to any of Saul's letters that he writes, he refers to himself as a slave to Jesus, a servant. He, he goes from being the high counsel to a slave or a servant. You can hear the change in his demeanor and his, his attitude. And then we all know that, that how driven and how dedicated the Apostle Paul becomes, right? I mean, we're going to find unto death. We're going to find Saul's very sad life in many ways. And he dedicates himself fully to Christ. He suffers severely for Christ. His life, by the time we get done studying it, is going to be shockingly sad to you. He doesn't say it's sad. But in the world's eyes, it is just suffering after suffering after suffering. And I think of the words that Jesus explained to the Pharisees about the woman who anointed his feet, who was a, who was a sinful woman, who was known probably as a prostitute, at the very least an adulteress, and, and he says to the Pharisee, he says, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. You see, Saul's genuine repentance and faith is demonstrated with his extreme radical devotion unto Christ from here on out. It's a beautiful picture, an example for us for what it means to be changed by the grace of God. Let's finish out our story as we read 23 through 30. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea, which is a port, a harbor, and sent him off to Tarsus. And we're going to end our story there. But you see a consistent pattern, right? Saul preaches the truth with great authority and persuasion, Saul makes serious enemies within the religious Jewish council, and God's faithful people continue to protect Saul. Saul then uh, heads out to, it doesn't say here, but heads out to actually Arabia, 
for about three years where Saul then spends, we, we guess, some time really just growing in the Lord before his actual huge ministry launches. Turn with me in your Bibles. It's fun to, to see points of, in, in the other parts of the Bible that refer back to what we're studying. Turn with me to Galatians 1. <clears throat> Galatians is right after 2 Corinthians. 1 and 2 Corinthians is right after Romans. It's right after Acts. So it's just a few towards the end of the Bible, a few chapters there. And what I want to do at this point is just read one, Galatians 1, 15 through 24. It's just interesting. Again, this is the Apostle Paul writing about this time in his life. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So we know that that the first thing he did was go away to a big spiritual retreat. He had to get his heart and his head right with the Lord. Then he returns back to Damascus and he stays for about three years before then he leaves to Jerusalem. Then Then he has to leave and go back to Tarsus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem and get get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Interesting. I saw none of the other apostles. We're going to talk about that in the so what section. I wonder if they just didn't allow themselves to trust and believe what God had done in Saul. I assure you before God that when I'm writing you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only, the only heard the, they only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. See, the title of our sermon is Unlikely Servant. And, and, and the key spiritual truth is God calls those who, knows they are, who know they are unworthy. And I would add to that that God calls those who not only know they are unworthy, but who others know they are unworthy. Because why? Because then they praise God because of us. Those of us that know it's not about us. It is simply God's grace that showed up when I didn't deserve it or ask for it in any way was a merited for me. I want us to also note about Barnabas. There's an interesting side note. Did you catch there that Barnabas... When, when he goes to Jerusalem, Barnabas appears on the scene again as the one who leads Saul to the leaders of the church. He's the one that gives weight to Saul's genuine faith and repentance, see? Barnabas always shows up when someone isn't believing in someone else. Barnabas always shows up when someone doesn't quite believe that God's grace really is sufficient to change that person. Barnabas is the one who always shows up. Because then it says, then the apostles received me after Barnabas gave testimony to me, see. It's, it's, it's kind of the, uh, my old pastor used to say, the, the law of the lid, if you will. The law of the lid is, is, is the blessing comes from the, the leadership structure. So as Barnabas puts his blessing on Saul and brings him to the council, then they, they believe Barnabas because they trust Barnabas. And they start to see Saul in a different light. Then the people start receiving Saul. See, it's a law of the lid. In order to, to have God's blessing in our life among the people, it starts with the leader, see. The leaders have to be right with God. And, and, and then the people, if they want God's blessing, it comes from the leader. 
And so we see this happening even in, in Saul's life. And that all leads us to the so what. The first so what is this. The first thing we notice here is how highly unlikely Saul was for his assignment, right? The first thing we notice. What we have to understand is that, that Paul understood that spiritual gifts are gifts of grace. See, Paul understood that even though he was quite the theologian, even though he was a sharp guy, even though he was highly educated in Jewish law and custom, he still understood that the spiritual gifts that God gave him for his calling and his purpose were gifts of grace. We have it on the screen. It's kind of long. We're going to read through it together. Romans 12. And I'm going to read it. It's 12, 3, and 6 through 8. For by the grace given to me, all right, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not, do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So basically what he's saying there, remember, is that no matter what your gift is, even if it's, even if it's uh, generosity, right? E- even if, if God has given you enough to give generously, it's all a gift of grace by God. And we're not to see ourselves as too highly, but to see ourselves as the most unlikely of servants of the gift that God has given us for his purposes. Another, another second so what, if you will. So what's the so what? What does this mean for us today is this. A common denominator that all those who preach the full gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, experience what? Persecution. It's a common denominator. We're going to see it all the way through. You continue to see it today. Even among the Christians, right? They haven't even gotten to the Gentiles yet. They're still among themselves. Persecution within the church is a common denominator for those who preach and believe and hold to the full gospel. It goes back to the beginning. It has been since the beginning. It will be till the end. We have to expect it. It's part of the package deal. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian martyr under the Nazi regime, wrote this, Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. Right? Now, I don't like to suffer. I'm not, I'm not saying bring it, Lord. I think fear is a normal, common emotion. I think we all struggle with fear. I mean, they feared what might happen to them if Saul was just pretending, right? Uh, sometimes I, I, I fear what might happen uh, to, to me as a woman pastor preaching the full gospel of Christ in today's world. Sometimes I, I check in all the time. Is this really something you want me to do, Lord? Because there will be things I will have to preach that I believe is the truth that might get me in a little bit of trouble. And I'm constantly checking in because I'm afraid. I'm human. But fear gets in the way of following Christ. See, if we allow ourselves to be driven by fear instead of faith, fear gets in the way of, of it robs the church of what Christ has for the church. See, and, and, and it causes us to disobey God. Rarely is it safe to follow God in this world. (laughs) Let me just tell you, rarely is it safe. It's always a risk 
to follow Christ in this world. Why? Because everything about his kingdom is upside down. Every value, every perspective, everything is different than this world. So even though we have less of a risk where we live because we have more rights so far, it's still rarely completely safe to follow Christ in this world because the kingdom goes completely against the ways of this world. It's upside-down living. And so the question for each and every one of us this morning is, am I willing to suffer for Christ, right? That would be the question I think I have when I read this passage. That was the question I had to wrestle with, God, am I willing? I don't have to ask, am I able, see? Because from what I study, I can see that Jesus showed up for Stephen. I can see that Jesus is going to show up for every single one of his martyrs. I know that God will strengthen me in that moment. I, I, I don't have to give in to that fear when I believe and I put my confidence in Christ and I have faith in him. He'll give me the ability. So then the question is, can I do it? The question is, am I willing? See, Am I willing to suffer for Christ? It's a question that this text, I think, challenges each and every one of us to ask ourselves. And perhaps this is the very reason why God called Saul as his chosen apostle. Not because of his great abilities or intellect or Jewish connections, but because of his willingness to suffer for Christ, which came really from his humility. Because if he had put his confidence in himself, he probably would measure up, there's no way I can do that. But since he was humble, he received everything from grace, he then put his faith and confidence in Christ, which made him willing then to suffer for Christ, knowing Christ would be with him every step of the way. I think distrust is another common emotion, not just fear, but distrust, right? That's another common one. When, when your experience with, with God is different from mine, we, 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 we tend to be skeptical. We, we tend to not believe it. We have fellow Christian, Christian brothers and sisters who experience God a little different theologically, maybe. Maybe from all the way from being Pentecostal to, 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 to only singing hymns. I mean, it's across the board, and we tend to distrust one another. Um, I, I remember when I was in the, uh, ministering with the Church of the Underground, uh, Underground Church of Iran, and they were under such severe persecution that they had a heavy distrust of one another. So if a new person came into their very small cell groups, their small cell groups were underground, they were very small, then they, they were worried, just like the Christians were, that maybe this person was a spy to hunt them down. So they didn't reveal anything to them until, and they weren't allowed really into their meetings to, to, to meet other Christians until they could prove that they too had a vision that the rest of them could relate to. Now, I understand that. We get that because they were scared. But what if God revealed something very different to a person? And, and it's something that, that they couldn't really relate to. Are they just going to, to put them aside and not trust? See, it's, it's a difficult thing. It calls for discernment for sure. But we have to be careful that we don't just distrust someone just because their experience with God is different than ours. Because God works in different ways. I mean, you look at Jesus. Sometimes he, he put his hands on someone and, and, and said, you're healed. And sometimes he spit in the mud and put it on their eye. And he never did anything twice. Never. So we have to be open how God is working. We have to be discerning. So I love the covenant, right? What's our main phrase? Where is it written? We go back to the word of God, which helps us to make those discerning decisions, but not just because someone's different than us. That would be something a little bit different. 
And, and I think another normal response to God's instruction would be that, um, that we judgment disbelief. And that really leads us to our final so what um, um, take home here is we can never place a label on a person, right? That's a biggie for us out of this text. Judgment and, 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 and judging others is, is a part of our sinful, broken uh, human behavior, if you will. But you and I never know who the Lord's going to choose. And let me just promise you, it's someone that you wouldn't. I promise you that. It's someone you'll be surprised. When God starts showing up and doing something in someone's life and it's powerful, it's someone you never would have thought. That's how the Spirit works. He looks at the heart, not the appearance like we do. See? And because it's all grace, who are we then to withhold grace to one another that has been given so graciously to us, right? Do you have a Saul in your life? There's another question, right? I mean, the ISIS question is big enough. I I wrestle with that all week. Wow. Could I really entrust an ISIS person to come into our church today because he's had a true conversion of faith? That's a biggie. After everything they've done. Lord, do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done? Do you know what she's done? Do you know who this person really is? Maybe we say that about ourselves. Lord, do you know what I've done? How could you love me? How could you use me? Do you know all that I still struggle with? And yet God's grace says, yes, I know. But that's why I'm going to use you. Because then I'll get all the glory. See, my same old pastor that I had taught us one thing, that we're always to learn from other people. Like Proverbs would tell us, wisdom comes from watching other people, learning their mistakes, learning their successes, and and drawing those lessons so we don't have to go through them ourselves. We can do that. He he said he would go through, he'd read through Proverbs, and to help understand what Proverbs was saying, he'd write like in pencil, probably so no one could see it, uh, someone's name right next to that proverb because it helped him get a visual of what God was trying to teach him. But he said, here's the line we have to draw. We never, ever keep that person in that box. We never put a label on someone, see? You never know what God's going to do. It's like God calls us to love our enemies. Who's your Saul? Who would it be hard for you to entrust yourself to? To the true conversion, true faith, true repentance. Who in your mind is beyond God's grace? The Word tells us God's grace is sufficient for us. God calls those who know they are not worthy and who others know they are not worthy because only the humble place their faith in God and then are willing to suffer for Christ because their confidence is in Him and Him alone. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's a difficult passage in many ways, Lord, that we looked at today. And I just ask you, Lord, to help us just receive what you have for us today as a church and in our personal lives, Lord. Help us not to get into our theological boxes and wonder what that means if, and, but help us just to receive the depth of your grace. Help us just to, just to land in that for a while. Just stay in that and realize the grace that you've given to each one of us and the grace that you would give even to the worst of sinners. 
whom Paul identifies himself as. Lord, your grace is beyond our understanding. It is radical. It pursues us when we don't want it. Sometimes all we do is kick against it. And yet, you are the relentless hound of heaven. Because you love us. With a love that is unconditional. And a love that just wants to bring us grace. Help us, Lord, to receive it in repentance and faith. And help us to support others to do the same. No matter how different they are from us. Lord, as we give an offering today, we just pray your blessing on it, Lord. That without your blessing, it would just fall to the ground. But with your blessing, Lord, it can be loaves and fishes for us here at Oakwood. We pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior.